and welcome to another episode of the Buddhist Studies Podcast. My name is Kate Hartman, and I'm the director of Buddhist Studies Online, as well as assistant professor of Buddhist Studies at the University of Wyoming. And it's my great honor today to have Dr. Elesh Ruiz Valquez. And Elesh has a lot of wonderful titles and appointments, so I'll give you some of them. He's head of the Department of Pali and Languages at Shan State Buddhist University in Myanmar. Kansai Postdoctoral Research Fellow in Buddhist Studies, as well as Lecturer of Pali at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And of course, the reason we're talking today is that he is the professor of our upcoming elementary Pali courses at Buddhist Studies Online. So thank you to Elesh. And um, again, we're so happy to have you join us. Thank you very much, Kate. And thank you to Buddhist Studies Online for inviting me at this podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Yes, we're so excited to be able to offer these languages. Um, but perhaps we can start by just helping listeners get to know you a little bit more. You know, how does somebody come to study um, Pali and all of the many other languages that I know that you work on? Well, I guess uh, many people I meet today, they think that I'm the, the Pali guy maybe, or they know that I'm studying Pali. I mostly devote all my time right now at the, to the study of Pali and early Buddhism, if you wish, or the, the Pali tradition, the Theravada tradition. But we all have a, a story, right, or a history. So actually, when I was, when I was a teenager, I was very much interested in literature. Um, uh, in fact, actually, I like to write fiction and I liked literature in general, uh, especially the Greek, ancient Greek literature, also Indian literature. But, you know, these kind of things that were very far away in time, things that look a little bit exotic in a way, different ways of thinking. Uh, so maybe reading Plato when I was a teenager and then some Indian authors, that kind of affected me in, in a very uh, major way. I had a kind of fascination with asceticism also, I don't know exactly why, because I was not living a kind of ascetic life at all. I, rather the opposite, maybe. But I had always this fascination with asceticism, with uh, saints, people who wouldn't even drink wine. They just drank water. Whether it was in Greece or in India, I had this, uh, this attraction. And when I, I was about to go to college, I had this uh, dilemma. And I, I wanted to become a filmmaker, you know, uh, to go to film school but I also wanted to study classics and ancient languages. So for some reason, then I, I thought, well, at least I will get some uh, classical education first and maybe later on I will go for cinema or something like this. Uh, but then I, I joined the college and I did my classics degree, but at some point I just, uh, I had the opportunity to take a course in Sanskrit, which was very rare in Barcelona. I'm actually, I, I'm from Barcelona from a small town near Barcelona. And after that course, I felt that uh, that was not enough. And then, of course, I had some opportunities to study in Europe, but somehow I needed to go out of Spain and to fly far away. And I thought, well, why not going to India and visiting India, living there, visiting the country or knowing the country from the inside, living there and, and also learning Sanskrit. Uh, my goal at that time was very simple. I wanted to translate the Ramayana into Catalan, which is my mother tongue. And that was very clear. Uh, now, of course, I haven't done it and I probably will never do it, but that was my goal. I will go to India, I will learn Sanskrit, and I will translate uh, the Ramayana into Catalan, like a very famous poet that we have here. He translated the Odyssey, so I will do the same with the Ramayana. But then 
That's also a very impressive goal. The Ramayana is so long. Were you planning to pull an abridged version of it? Uh, no, no. The the point. Maybe I, I was ready to devote my entire life or something like that. Uh, that I think, as far as I can remember, that was the only time when my girlfriend at that time I was twenty four. That girlfriend that I had, she was impressed about my goals at that time. But for the rest, she was never interested in in this kind of studies that were pointless to her and all, all that. But in the end, so I went there, and when I finally managed to joined the, the master's degree in Sanskrit at the University of Pune. And I also chose Pune due to very random reasons. I didn't know India, so I just was going, you know, uh, reading on the internet and trying to, to decide where to go. So I went to Pune, I landed there. I got admission in the master's degree in Sanskrit. And then I, I told them that my goal was to study poetry. We had to specialize in, in, in one branch of Sanskrit, that it's so broad that you have to choose poetry or one type of Shastra or philosophy or, or Veda or, or some, something. And then I said, well, very clearly, I'm going for poetry. And then they were saying, but why, why would you do that? Like, why are you wasting your time with poetry? Like, you can do that when you, when you grow, grow up and when you are old, sitting in the couch at your house uh, with a dictionary, you just read poetry for fun. But since you are here, do something more serious, like like grammar or logic, like Vyakrana, that is the grammar, or Nyaya, that is logic. And I said, well, I'll go for, for grammar. I mean, I have to learn Sanskrit, right? So I go for grammar. But then I discovered that there was a very good professor in logic, uh, Professor Vien Jha. He's already retired. He's an eminence in the field of Nyaya. Uh, and I knew that the, he had no students. So I said, well, if we have this eminent scholar here and I, I came all the way to Pune, then I'm going to, I'm going to change. So I'm going for Nyaya. So I ended up uh, reading uh, Indian logic with this great professor. Uh, my grades were not very good, but my progress was very good, at least in my own opinion. I, I was learning a lot. We were just reading Nyaya texts and Nyaya sutras with some commentaries here and there. Then also we had to take an extra subject and here's where the Pali story begins, partially. Then uh, I, I had to choose between Prakrit uh, or Pali or some other subjects. And because in, in our residence, in our hostel, um, we're living with people from all over the place, including many uh, Buddhist monks, many of them Theravada monks. Then I, I, I met them and I was friends with them and they were doing Pali. So I said, well, this Pali is actually, this is the language of the Buddha and maybe I can learn more about what these monks are telling me about the, the original teachings of the Buddha. So I chose Pali as an, as an option. That was my optional subject. My degree was in Sanskrit. Pali was a kind of the minor subject. But immediately it became a major subject for me personally because I found the teachings of the Buddha that I was reading in those texts in those scriptures, I found them uh, fascinating, maybe also because of my personal circumstances, being uh, relatively young, maybe, and especially very inexperienced in the world. I was living there alone in different countries, so I was also questioning many things about myself, who, who, who I was, right, my, all my past, and it, it looked really like a dream. I changed country, I changed everything. I had no friends, no family, so it really uh, struck me, and from that point, then after uh, meeting those monks, and I became friends with many of them, uh, with some of them, we had constant conversations and discussions on the teachings and so on. Also, I could see at a practical level how they lived, how they 
how they embodied the Vinaya and the monastic rules, etc. And also we visited all the many uh, great places of Buddhism, like the caves of Ajanta, but also the, the, these uh, pilgrimages to Bodhgaya, to Lumbini, and so on. And that's where actually the kind of the, the, the crucial moment or the epiphany was, uh, I think I was in Bodhgaya and I had a fever or something. I got very sick. I was in one of these uh, Burmese monasteries for pilgrims. And I was reading one book by Rhys Davis called uh, Buddhist India. This, this is a kind of classical book in the discipline. And somehow at that moment I said, well, this is, this is for me. Uh, I will try. I will try my best and become, you know, specialize in this. And after my degree, I will, I will continue. But then it was not so easy. I will try to make the long story short, and then maybe we have we can discuss more. But it was not so easy. So with with some ups and downs because it's difficult to basically it's difficult to earn money doing Pali, right? So I, I I unless you are a monk, and I was not becoming a monk at that time. I mean, unless you're I mean you are not making money if you are a monk, but you can live. Uh, but in my case, I was not a monk, so I had to work. I ended up. Uh, very luckily finding a very good scholarship to study in the United Kingdom. And initially, I, I, my, my wish, my goal was to study with Professor Rupert Gettin at Bristol University. But then he told me that if my, if my interest was in grammar, then I, I better, I should go to Cambridge. And luckily, I got admission in Cambridge University, and, and that's where I did my PhD. Then I specialized in these grammatical traditions, all the medieval Burmese tradition of Pali, and well, moving from one place to the other. Uh, fortunately, now I can, I can devote my life to Pali, and it's, uh, it's, it's really good. I think I, I've been learning. I'm still learning, and also teaching. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful story of so many twists and turns, and you know, when you go someplace new, you realize that there was this the thing that it seems like it was meant for you all along that you didn't even know about. Um, and that's so great that you were able to follow those twists and turns. Um, because yes, uh, the, the way forward for somebody who is, is studying some of these classical languages, you know, is not always clear, right? And there's very few people who, you know, are studying them and able to teach them. And so, you know, all of that goes to just how grateful we are at BSO to be able to teach these courses and to expand the amount of people that get to encounter these languages in Pali. And so since I imagine some of you listening to this podcast may not know very much about uh, Polly, I'm going to ask, you know, some pretty simple questions about Polly. Um, like, so what is Polly? What is, where, where, what is this language? Where did it come from? Um, imagine explaining it to someone who, who doesn't necessarily have so much background. Well, uh, with Pali, I think the simple questions are the most difficult questions. Maybe if you would have asked me some very intricate grammatical question, that would be easier to, to answer. Or at least I could say, well, I don't know anything about that. I don't know the answer. The case of what, what, what is Pali, usually when we say Pali, we mean a language. Like when we say English, we, if it's the language, it's not an English person. It's English, the language, or French, the language, or Spanish, the language. So Pali is a language, but this language is not independent. It's not independent from a corpus, a body of literature that contains the teachings of the Buddha in an Indian language, in an Indian dialect. So Pali is a language, is a language from Northern India. 
exactly to which region it corresponds is not totally clear. Maybe we don't have enough data to know that. There are different theories, but basically it should correspond to a language, whether it was a spoken language or a literary language, artificial language, it should correspond to the region that more or less also overlaps with the kingdom of Ashoka or the empire of Ashoka. There are many scholars who propose that Pali represents the lingua franca or the common language that was used in what would be more or less northern, the northern half of India. Uh, so it's an ancient Indian language. It's a language from ancient India. Uh, it's not Sanskrit. Uh, Sanskrit would be the language of the Brahmins, the language of the Vedic uh, uh, cult or the, the Vedic uh, culture. And Pali, it seems that it corresponds rather to vernacular, a vernacular language or dialect. So usually uh, linguists call it uh, one of the Middle Indo-Aryan dialects. But that may be to the person who is not aware of these classifications, that doesn't say anything. So basically, as I say, it's, an, it's a language from ancient India, and it's a language in which this body of literature, which contains the teachings of the Buddha, has come down to us. But then because the teachings of the Buddha in this tradition are written in this language, which we call Pali, then uh, commentators and scholars of later ages, they also learned this language and they started writing also in Pali. So even though Pali would correspond to a language of ancient Northern India around maybe the fourth century before the common era, it, it's still used today. So there is a continuous tradition of Pali writing and Pali study, uh, Pali scholarship in India and outside India, today in Southeast Asia also in Sri Lanka. So Pali is the name of this language, but it also, it's also the name of this culture, this Buddhist culture that corresponds to what we usually uh, term the uh, Theravada tradition, the teaching of the elders. And of course, there are other collections of Buddhist texts, and there are other Buddhist texts from India written in Indian languages. But what is peculiar and what is exceptional in the case of Pali is that we preserve the entire canon or the entire body or collection of, of teachings of the Buddha, at least according to a very ancient tradition, we preserve the entire complete set in an Indian language. Pali is an Indian language. We also preserve uh, complete sets, to put it this way, complete collections of the teachings in other traditions, for instance, the Tibetan tradition and the Chinese tradition, but these are not Indian languages. So these are translations from some Indian language, closer or less close to Pali, uh, but they are not Indian languages. Then we also preserve some Buddhist texts in Sanskrit or in uh, other dialects like Gandhari, but we do not have an entire corpus, an entire body of literature. So this is what makes Pali so interesting. And we have so many different layers of literature, so many different genres in this literature. Uh, so to go back to the question, then what, when we say Pali, what we mean is the language in which these texts are written. That is the kind of circular uh, definition. Mm -hmm. And how is... Um you know, Pali different from Sanskrit. So you, you mentioned that Sanskrit is the language of, you know, Brahminical culture, so the priestly class and what we might call today Hinduism, and that Pali is the language of, you know, these early Buddhist scriptures. How are those languages different or are there differences in grammar or vocabulary? 
there are many differences. Of course, there are many similarities. Uh, linguistically, if we would be looking at those two languages, Sanskrit and Pali, from the point of view of the linguist, they are uh, sister languages or the cousin, cousin languages, we would say. Maybe today the consensus is that uh, they would be like cousins, not, not sisters or brothers. So they are quite similar. Uh, they have a kind of ge common genetic origin. They have a common origin. So we could trace easily parallels between the two. The syntax works very similarly. The sentence structure is similar. And many times with the, the only difference between one Sanskrit word and a Pali word is in the phonetics. So a very simple example. If in Sanskrit we say Nirvana, in Pali we say Nibbana, but it's the same word. Some people would say that Pali is a kind of a vulgar or popular uh, spoken Sanskrit or a wrongly or corrupt uh, Sanskrit. That's what the Sanskrit tradition would say, that all these languages like Pali and other Prakrits are a kind of the generations of Sanskrit. That's a way of looking at it. But I think that if we just look at the language and at the grammar, we are missing a very important point, which is the character of the literature the style and the types of text that we encounter in these two different uh, domain, uh, linguistic domains. So the linguistic domain of Sanskrit is of course very broad and there's usually this uh, distinction between the ancient Sanskrit that is Vedic and later Sanskrit or classical Sanskrit. Uh, but even these two domains, they have their specific uh, bodies of literature and they are mostly related to Brahmanical culture. Whereas in Pali, uh, the texts are related to uh, Buddhist culture, if we can use this term. And therefore, the topics that are discussed, they have to do with the teachings of the Buddha. So there are terms that are used in a specific way. So even if we have the, the same term in Sanskrit, the meaning is not going to be exactly the same. And, and then the social milieu, the social context is quite different. In the case of the uh, Pali Buddhist texts, we find a kind of uh, palette or gamut, a social gamut or social description that is quite uh, broad, uh, horizontally and vertically, like we find from kings to outcasts. And horizontally also we find from people from different regions, people speaking, according to the text, they were speaking different dialects across India. The Buddha and his disciples are traveling all the time. They have no problem with traveling. They are basically mendicants or beggars. So you find this uh, very interesting description of society that is very different from the one you, you find in the Brahmanical uh, texts. Buddhism was a religion that was open to everyone. So we find different types of characters. Sometimes we can even find in, in the interventions and in the, in the speech of these characters, some kind of dialectal particularities or features. So linguistically, linguistically it has this interest. Pali corresponds supposedly to a popular dialect. And that is not only important in linguistic terms, it's also important in literary terms. The, ty the types of texts that we have, the types of characters and stories that are narrated in those texts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's often, you know, so we at BSO are offering these poly courses and our sister site, Yogic Studies, is offering Sanskrit classes. And so we get lots of emails from people saying, you know, should I study Sanskrit or should I study poly? Um, and my response is always, you know, well, what are you interested in reading? You know, um, because you can access different things in these different languages. And, you know, sometimes we see the language as just the lens through which we get to the stuff. 
Uh, but the language itself, the meaning of the words are sort of given by the corpus, right? The context in which they occur and, you know, the text containing this language. True. Uh, actually, when I, when I went to India, I thought that I knew Sanskrit, for instance, and I did. I knew the grammar of Sanskrit, but that was worth uh, nothing because when I arrived, I didn't understand the meaning of the words. I didn't have the vocabulary, and most importantly, I didn't have the background that all my classmates had. So it took me a few months, maybe at, at least a couple of months or three months to catch up a little bit and to get a basic vocabulary. But then soon afterwards, I realized that even if you are studying Sanskrit, you will have different domains. Uh, if you study philosophy or a certain school of philosophy, you will maybe become proficient in that school of philosophy. So as you say, it, it always depends on, on what, what a person uh, wishes to learn. If someone is interested in Buddhism uh, in general, learning Pali is always useful. Of course, it is advisable to learn Sanskrit and Pali simultaneously, and as soon as you get a foundation, then start reading the text because many times they look exactly the same or they have similar structures, similar characters, and it's very easy to recognize the you know, Sanskrit and Pali parallel, uh, let alone if someone goes to Tibetan or Chinese, that would be excellent. If someone is interested in Buddhism, Pali is a must. So that, that's, that's the thing. That would be the, the answer. It's not, let's not talk about languages. It's like, what is your interest? If you are interested in the teachings of the Buddha, whatever the, your tradition may be. I had many classmates in Pali that were from Korea, from Vietnam, from Japan. Uh, they were coming from different Mahayana traditions or Zen traditions or Tibetan traditions. They all end, uh, end up going to Pali because that is considered one of the fountains of, of Buddhism. So that is more or less clear. If someone is interested in Buddhism, definitely Pali, definitely Sanskrit, so both together, but then as quick as possible, just move to the text, move to Buddhist text. Then if someone is interested in, in ancient India, then again, Pali is very important because of the, all the social aspects and all the, this kind of, this other side of the coin that we will hardly find in Brahmanical texts. So if you read Brahmanical texts or, or Sanskrit texts, and at the same time, you can read Pali texts, then you will have a much more complete vision of India, the religions, if you study them in contrast, they are, sometimes they make better sense. You know to whom each one is replying. It's more like a dialogic situation. It's like a dialogue. And then things make a little bit more sense. So again, I don't see any problem in studying Sanskrit and Pali simultaneously. Um, so only studying Pali without Sanskrit can be at times problematic, but not always. If someone is uh, serious and and genuine, then that is also fine. If someone is interested in this Theravada tradition, someone is a, a serious meditator in Pali, it's perfectly possible to study Pali and to read the suttas within with less than a year of studying. That is definitely so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that that's how you've planned out this, this course is um, starting people off, moving as quickly as possible to um, encountering actual sort of texts in the Buddhist tradition rather than just staying you know, purely abstract grammar. Um, one question I have before we talk more about how you structure the course, though, is so Pali is often said by some people to be, um, as you mentioned, the the earliest complete canonical collection of Buddhist texts. Um, and some will even go farther to say that this is the language that the Buddha spoke, uh, whereas other scholars are a bit more 
hesitant to say things like that. Um, what is your perspective on kind of this question? Yeah, good. good point. Uh, so the debate is still going on and I haven't participated in this debate at a scholarly, uh, scholarly level because my field of expertise is not in, in the early uh, layers or in the early Pali texts, but in medieval texts and grammatical texts and scholastic texts. So I'm not so sure that I'm going to jump into this debate, but maybe I do because I'm now writing a book that has to do with the language of the text. Um, maybe I will not say the language of the Buddha. That is a very difficult question, really. We don't have any recordings and there are indications that even the recension or the collection of Pali texts that we have at the moment, so were uh, collected and put into, uh, as we said, a, a big collection around the time of Ashoka. That would mean a couple of hundred years after the Parinibbana of the Buddha. So we don't know exactly. Now, when, when students ask me, uh, was Pali the language of the Buddha? The easy answer that I say is, well, the Buddha would have understood Pali. And if you know Pali, you would, you would understand the Buddha. That I think is something that I would uh, defend and I would be ready to you know, put my hand in the, in the fire or, or uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure of that because we have other ev uh, linguistic evidences of Northern India. And we can see that there was a dialectal variety. There were different dialects. But they are so close, including if you include Sanskrit also in this family, they are so close that it is almost sure that if you know one, you can probably understand those who, who speak the other dialects. So this is, to me, this is what matters. Exactly what someone spoke or not is difficult to tell, especially because uh, Indian, uh, the Indian writing systems are what is called, I think in, in linguistics is called uh, shallow systems. That's because they are very clear, so they write as they speak. You don't need much effort. If you know how the, how the writing works, then you just read and it's a kind of phonetic writing. You don't need to put much effort. Uh, unlike other, other scripts like Hebrew, where you need to know many things in order to, to read aloud properly. So with Sanskrit or Pali over these North Indian uh, languages, they were written in a way that it was almost like a phonetic transcription. So if you would do that uh, with English today, then you would come to the conclusion that people in New York and people in Arkansas, they speak different languages. And then would you say, well, if there is one teacher born in Arkansas and say, did he speak English or not? Uh, well, we have this document here and that document there, but this is people taking notes using a phonetic uh, system. So people from Arkansas would probably write it down in one way, the way they pronounce it. People in some other parts of the US and let alone if someone from Australia or South Africa or England, they are transcribing that the way they would pronounce it. So that's, I think, the situation we have in India. I think it's not very problematic. I would agree that the Pali language is more or less the language of the Buddha. The big question is whether the Buddha really said all the things that we find in the Tipitaka. That is a difficult question also, and I don't really have an answer. I'm of the opinion, or I would be in the school of those who, yeah, I would, I would defend and maintain that uh, there was someone, uh, there was the, the historical Buddha, he existed, he was a great teacher, uh, but then it's very difficult to, to decide what is his teaching, which parts of the text correspond to general culture, and which parts of the text are just his teaching. 
uh, I know that there are some there are some methodologies, and for instance, a very common methodology is to say, well, there are parts of the Tipitaka which are shared by all the Indian religions. So this is not part of the specific teaching of the Buddha. This is just uh, you know common belief in India that is not exclusive to the Buddha. So we don't need to think that the Buddha really believed that it was something that was in the air. But what about, for instance, human rights today in the West? So we, we all basically believe in defending human rights, and but we may have different philosophies. Now, if someone 2,000 years later would say, well, they all defended human rights at that time, so that doesn't mean that they really believe them. It was just something that was in the air, so let's, let's scrap it. Let's take the human rights out of the picture and focus on what is only exclusive. So maybe many philosophers today, they would argue that, well, in my teaching, human rights are more important than those things that are exclusive to me. So I know that it's common to other philosophers, but maybe if the, if there would be a very uh, critical situation, we would all agree that human rights are the most important thing and things that are exclusive to our own schools are not so important. So who knows? In the case of the Buddha, when people leave out, for instance, the beliefs in uh, reincarnation or rebirth or beliefs in, in gods and deities, because these are things that were shared with other uh, schools of thought, then I'm not so sure about these methodologies. This is, a, this is a plausible way of reading the text, but I'm not so sure. So the question would be, did the Buddha really teach everything that we find in the Tipitaka or not? Uh, and this debate is as old as Buddhism. So basically the the evolution and uh, the progress of Buddhism in history is the progress of this discussion in different schools, different languages, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm always uh, telling my students that Buddhists themselves are really good readers of texts, and they're very much aware that you know these scriptural collections were often, even according to the texts themselves, collected after the death of the Buddha, and there's some editing being done, and that that, you know, people are sometimes aware that this is not sort of the, necessarily the direct revelation of the Buddha, you know, speaking from some heaven. Um, this is a group of disciples attempting to sort of organize and collect and remember all of the teachings of the Buddha. And so, yeah, whenever I get questions about, well, do we know if the Pali Canon was actually spoken by the Buddha in the form that we have it? Um, I'll say, well, one, you know, look to the, the history of the councils. Um, after the Buddha died, his disciples gathered together and tried to organize what they remembered of his teachings. And two, um, you know, if not, you know, this is what we've got. Um, and so none of us were there around the fifth century BCE. It's really difficult to prove or disprove. Um, but what we do know is that this collection of texts was, you know, put at the center of centuries and centuries of religious practice and became kind of the foundation of, you know, so much learning and scholarship and practice. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, as a, I don't know if I could call myself a Buddhist. I think this is a very big word. I, I do try to practice meditation following the Burmese tradition, which is what I have learned. And I think it's, it's really good, uh, at least for some people. And one can learn uh, many things about oneself and about life. And it's a really interesting school of thought, I think, historically, but also in the present. So if one is really interested in the teachings of the Buddha, as they are usually presented, 
then one of the main features of Buddhism is this theory about the present moment or the Kshanikavada or the Kamikavada, like living in the present, that is a kind of mantra in many schools of Buddhism. So if one is living in the present, then why do we worry so much about uh, what was exactly what the Buddha said or not? Uh, as a practitioner, uh, I would probably try to find a good teacher, someone who has practiced, someone who has a good grounding also in the, in the literature, in the scriptures, who can read them critically. And I think that's why there are many teachers who value the study of texts, even if they are great meditators. If one goes to, for instance, to Sri Lanka or to, to Burma, to Myanmar, many of the greatest meditation teachers, even founders of meditation uh, lineages, they were initially great scholars. And, and you can feel that in, in their writings. They based their, their, their teachings on meditation on the, on the reading of the text. And that is a very deep reading, but they probably don't get entangled into historical questions that are very difficult to answer, really. And so maybe in that case, I think this is this is this is a kind of non-problem. We are probably going uh, we are probably not going to solve this problem. It's one of these questions that the Buddha maybe would decide not to answer because whatever you say, you will end up discussing more and making the conflict um, more difficult to to solve. I don't know how to how to say it otherwise. But of course, as an academic question, it remains open. It's always interesting to have to have uh, fresh approaches. There are books published all the time from different angles. Just today, I, I got the most recent book by Professor Mark Allen from Sydney on the composition of early Buddhist texts. And I'm going to read it uh, as soon as I can. So you see, this is, this is one more angle uh, to study these texts from the point of view of the, how they were composed. That's not just Pali texts, but uh, texts in Gandhari and uh, other dialects. So there are different approaches and keeping an open mind and studying the languages and uh, having a, a proper argument that is, that is quite important, I think. And we can all learn from different points of view. That's my experience so far. Yeah, and I think that that, um, you know, speaks to me that looking at these questions historically as an academic sort of thing to be solved is an interesting question, but it's certainly not the only way to encounter these languages. And to, um, it's not the case that you have to have all of these questions answered before you can appreciate the richness of the language and of the text. And um, for those of you who are writing down the name of Mark Allen's composition of early Buddhist texts, um, I will post that in the show notes along with um, Reese David's Buddhist India that you mentioned earlier. Um, so that should just be below this. Um, one question I have is, you know, so when we at Buddhist Studies Online said, we'd, oh, we'd love to offer a language course, let's offer Pali, that's a great place to start. Um, and actually another instructor recommended you, and when I was looking at your resume of, you know, teaching with monks in Myanmar, but also teaching in sort of academic institutions. Um, I was just interested in what it's like to teach Pali at these different sorts of places. Like if when you were teaching in Myanmar and living at a monastery with Burmese monks, what's it like to teach Pali in that situation? Uh, that's a good question. And it reminds me that one of my mentors in Spain, uh, Professor Ana Agut from Salamanca, with a mentor that I never met, really. I never met her personally. She's a very good scholar, a professor of Indo-European linguistics in Salamanca. And uh, she was kind of mentoring me uh, by email 
for a few years. Uh, thanks to her also, I, I think I, I got this uh, recommendation and that was key in my scholarship and so on. But I remember that I was in touch with her uh, and at some point she said, well, I hope you don't end up in one of these monasteries in Myanmar lost there. I hope you find a proper job and, and you don't get stuck in a monastery. But in the end, that's where I got stuck. Uh, not really stuck, that was my, my wish really. And for many years I was, uh, I was having this idea that I, I wanted to live in Myanmar, in Burma and study there because it has a very rich Pali uh, tradition still alive. There are many uh, centers of education in Pali. There are many, many monks in Myanmar who are very, very proficient in Pali and they have all these perspectives. They also know about meditation, but they also uh, know about Vinaya. They, they know about all these different aspects. Of course, they live as a monks. They try to preserve the tradition. I'm sure there are monks who don't follow the tradition, but what matters here is that there are many who do follow the tradition, who study, who are really, really proficient and I would say that the large majority, they don't speak English and let alone publish in English. So no one knows about them. So my, my idea was not really to go to Myanmar and teach them anything, really, that it would be very foolish to, to have this idea. My idea was to very selfishly to go to Myanmar and learn more, learn from them. But that was something quite dif difficult, especially uh, in my case. I, I After a few visits, I thought that it would be really, really tough for me to live there permanently, uh, not only because it's maybe it's not easy to find a job or to sustain oneself economically, but just because of the weather. And, you know, I thought it, it was too hot. I was staying in Sagaing and in Mandalay, in the hot uh, areas. But then eventually I had the chance to join the Shan State Buddhist University. And that was a coincidence, a happy coincidence for me because the Shan, the the city of Taunji, the capital of the Southern Chan state is on the hills and it's very cool. It's very nice uh, for me at least. So then I thought, well, this project is really cool uh, in, in many ways because it will allow me to survive here. And that's when I, I moved there. So of course, officially, and because the, the Burmese and the Shans are very kind and they think I, I'm bringing the kind of the Western approach. They also are very eager to learn. So they give me the titles like a professor or head of the department and all that. But of course I try to teach as much as I can to, to my students, but I'm also learning a lot. I have been learning a lot. And what I try to do is try to collaborate with, with uh, many monastic students, mostly they are monastics. Uh, and then we share our ideas and then we try to, to engage in, in projects, reading manuscripts, reading texts, uh, there are some technical things or methodological aspects that they, they don't know about. They want to learn more about textual criticism. What do we do when we have a few manuscripts of the same work? How do we edit them? How do we read them? Uh, et cetera, et cetera, all these practical things. So this is something that maybe I can teach. Uh, then, of course, I can teach beginners everywhere. But basically, there are many monks there, even some of my students, some PhD students that I'm supervising that I consider my peers, I consider my colleagues. Some of them, I, I really consider them my teachers. I have been learning a lot from them, not only in, in Pali, but also in Burmese. I've been trying to study Burmese. And this is a really fascinating place to be. Now, unfortunately, I'm, I've been in Barcelona for a couple of years since the pandemic. Then there's all these political issues in Myanmar. So I'm not so sure when I will be able to go back, but 
to me, that was not a kind of escape from a difficult situation or I was not running away from anything or it's not that I couldn't find a job elsewhere. I, I, I think it's really good for a Pali scholar to be uh, maybe in Sri Lanka or in, in Thailand or in Myanmar. And once the, uh, I was discussing with a, an astrophysicist that I know from Argentina and she was asking me like, why would you go there to live? And I say, well, you, you study the stars and so on, and you always need these observatories, these big telescopes or radio telescopes. So this, this is what you like, what you study and your passion. So imagine a country where at every hill you would find a telescope. So that's a little bit for a Pali scholar. In, you go to Burma and at every hill there is a pagoda, there are monasteries everywhere. People are living uh, Buddhism. And that's why I think it's a great place. So my experience as a teacher is, is, uh, is important. I try to teach. I try to teach especially methodological aspects, but I'm also a, a learner. Very honestly, I'm not saying that out of, you know, because I'm modest or humble. It's, this, this is a fact, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it reflects that Polly holds a different place if you're studying it in a university context or you're studying it with mostly, you know, academics rather than, you know, practitioners who are reading it every day and chanting it every day. And um, I really love that picture of collaboration uh, that you're putting forth. Because again, you know, sometimes, you know, academia is rightly faulted for, you know, getting wrapped up in certain kinds of questions. Whereas I imagine um, the people that you were working with at Sean State University have different sorts of questions. You know, and it really kind of by virtue of having conversation with people who are looking to the language in these different ways, um, that just is going to enrich everyone's experience of it. Yeah, I mean, very much. I mean, it's what you say. It, it's uh, these things that look like details, but once you are there, you realize, oh, well, I haven't seen that. Uh, and no one knows about that because for sometimes for the Burmese, it's so obvious that they don't, they don't give, well, it's, it's something that is obvious that they know, but they don't think it deserves uh, to be you know, broadcasted everywhere or to write a book on that because uh, many of these works, they consider them uh, instrumental or they consider them kind of reference works. But for me, uh, being a scholar of Buddhism, like everything they do and they read to me is interesting and there are many things I don't know. And just to give you an example, there's a very good book on Pali grammar that everyone in Burma knows. They call it the, and sorry about my pronunciation, something like the Posse. I never heard of this book, really, before. It's written in Burmese, but it contains many different types of techniques and explanations on how to study Pali grammar and how to read Pali text. That was written, I think, around the 18th century or so uh, by a Burmese polymath, someone who was a great musician. I think it was a lay person. And so this book is, this book is everywhere. And finally, I, I got a copy. Maybe one day I'm going to write about this book or, or translate it or at least write an article or something because it's really interesting. And this is something I discovered very later on, maybe uh, three years ago. So this is one of these cases where I see, well, this book is really interesting. And if I would have had this book, I don't know, when I was 25, then that would have saved a lot of time. It's uh, very clear. And then you can see that, I don't know, historically also at this moment, there was uh, already this kind of level of progress in the study of grammar, or you know what I mean? So this thing happens all the time with this or that, like there are manuscripts, then, then uh, the monastic students, they are 
they may be my students, but in the society, they are respected scholars and they have many connections uh, through the years. Some of them, they are uh, my age, like I'm 40, so many of them are older than me. They have been studying Pali for decades already, since they, are, since they were children. They know people, they know librarians. So if you need to go to a library, they will always help you. So this is, this is extremely valuable and I really appreciate that. I find it that this is a privilege and sometimes also getting uh, access to scans of manuscripts and things that we usually study. This is not for the general Pali reader. If you are a scholar, then that, that is really, really good. You don't really need that. If you just want to read the suttas, we find books. But I'm just saying that there, there's this uh, line of scholarship that is very common in, in Burma. And we don't know much about that. Uh, many things written in Burmese, we don't know much about that. There's poetry in Burmese based on Pali. We don't know much about that. And so reading with students is always great. And I, I, I always learn, learn a lot. They always surprised also that, that I'm studying this text. Sometimes it goes the other way around. I discover them some uh, manuscript they didn't know about. So because we are interested in the same things, then they are happy and I'm also happy. <laughs> we kind of, we do it because we like it and we are learning and we, usually we forget that this is a job or this is a kind of profession or we are academics or I don't know exactly what we are. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the ideal picture of just being motivated by um, the love of uh, what you're learning, what you're discovering, the pleasure of reading and all those things. And it also points to, you know, this is something that I talk about with my students a lot um, because, you know, I, I'm a professor of Buddhist studies and yet, you know, there are so, so many people that know so, so much more than me and also different ways of knowing, right? The academic way of approaching Buddhist studies um, is quite different from maybe, you know, a practitioner's way of studying Buddhism and, you know, it's important never to forget that the one sort of academic track that gets kind of recognized in certain kinds of ways is not the only and certainly not the best. Um, and that we're overlooking all of these things, you know, that there's this super advanced grammar um, in Burma written in the 18th century. What was the name of that again? Pose. Pose. I think my pronunciation, I can give you more uh, uh, references. I think there is a scan online, so we can we can also uh, maybe give the link for downloading this this interesting book. Uh, mm. But yeah, so the post it. Yeah, there's still so much that's relatively understudied and, and, and unknown, you know, unless you go um, and spend some time with the tradition. And so... Um, you know, one other question that, you know, people listening to this might have is, well, how does one go about, you know, studying Pali? And so that that's the big question, but maybe I'll break it down into things. Like, what does Pali even look like on a page? Um, you know, Pali can be written in many different scripts. What does it kind of look like? And imagine, of course, that we're talking to somebody who really doesn't have very much familiarity with this. So I will talk from my own experience, of course. And my first experience of Pali was in the Devanagari script because I was in Pune. And what we had at that time uh, was this syllabus for the course and there was a portion that we would read. So my first Pali text was the Melinda Panya. That is a post-canonical or para-canonical text. This dialogue between uh, monk, the monk Nagasena and the King Melinda. So 
I went there to that kind of uh, copy uh, copy shop or Xerox copy shop, and I said, "Well, I need the syllabus and the reading portion for this course." And they gave me that, uh, you know, that, those uh, papers, and it was written in Devanagari, and that was the Pali, the first Pali text that I read. Uh, that's because Indian students read Pali in Devanagari. Then I saw that my Burmese classmates, they were they had other papers and other books that they carried from their own country, and it was the same text. But but written in Burmese. And then in the library, I could find the Pali Text Society's edition that I also copied, and that was in Roman script. So that's usually how uh, Westerners, or in general, the international student will read Pali, probably because we all read uh, Roman script. Maybe many of us will access Pali through Roman script, through the editions of the Pali Text Society. And because the Pali Text Society uh, consciously or not, is based on these uh, Oxford classical texts, editions. Uh, you have a page uh, of a certain measures, and then at the bottom you have the critical apparatus with the variant readings. So it all looks very academic, philologically very sound and very serious. So the Pytex Society publishes these types of uh, critical editions, and that's how the page looks like. And I think aesthetically, if you read the Pytex Society book, the, the editors of this series they intentionally want it to look in the same way as if you were reading uh, 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 Virgil or, or Ovid or any Latin author in, in Roman script, right? Uh, so, but in this case, it's Pali. It's a classical language. It has all this glamour. Uh, uh, so this is usually how we approach a text. It's written in, an, in a script that we can understand, that, that we can read. Of course, there are diacritics. There are some marks that we need to learn. The same happens with, with Greek. Uh, so there are long vowels and there are some consonants that are retroflex consonants. So you pronounce them with the tongue curled back. And, but apart from this, it's relatively easy. Then, of course, it's a language that is alien to us. It has a different grammar. So usually the student will start with a reader or some kind of pri uh, primer, some introduction to Pali. Uh, there are many books like this. And what I have seen is that uh, some students, they have been reading and studying these books for years but they haven't learned anything. And I don't know what, what's the reason really. Uh, I had never spent too much time with, the, with these books. I tried to go to the text, uh, use reference grammars, not the grammars that are introductions, but the, the grammars that tell you how the, how the language works, the structure, and the dictionaries. Try to become familiar with dictionaries. And today there are so many online tools that I didn't have when I started that. It's really, really easy. So actually, I don't know exactly how it will be for someone today to begin with Pali. I have some students, so from them I get, I get this idea that it's something that it can be very simple, but at the same time, very puzzling. Because you can go online, you can go to the digital Pali reader, and it's all there. And then you click on one window and you have the Pali. Click on a different window, you see the translation, the English translation. Then you click and you see below, you see a dictionary. So everything is given. You don't need to do much, uh, everything is easy. So in theory, then you can focus on Pali and say, well, I have everything, now I can finally read. But then somehow there is something missing. You read the sentence and say, well, I know that this is a nominative or maybe I, I think I know the grammar, but I have a doubt here and a doubt there. Then uh, these long sentences sometimes become confusing and one reads and translates and it doesn't make any sense. Then one looks at the translation and says, how possibly this person, this great scholar, reach 
that translation from this text because I cannot see that in this text. This happens uh, with obviously with many of these ancient languages. It's a very common experience, very frustrating. It uh, makes you hate everything and you want to give up and you want to, but then ne the next day comes and you want to try again. So uh, there are many ways one can study Pali, of course, but before you mentioned uh, our course, so here I would like to talk a little bit about what my approach would be as a teacher. And as a teacher, and in my humble experience, I think I'm not a great uh, expert in pedagogy, but I like Pali. I had different types of students. So what I tried to do and being realistic, understanding that it's not going to work for everyone, maybe at the same time. But what I, what I understand that my role is, is on the one hand, and maybe that's the most important role, I'm a motivator. I'm a kind of coach. And I, I'm sorry to use this word, but I think that's that's what really the teacher is. In the first place, is someone who who motivates. And if I remember my my greatest teachers, uh, I never remember them because they knew so much about a specific uh, topic or a specific subject. I remember them. I remember conversations with them. I remember them being accessible. Uh, I remember them asking good questions that I still ask myself sometimes, or they help me approach problematic uh, topics. Uh, so this is what I try in the first place. I try to be uh, as simple as possible. I don't want to mm, arrive as a great authority in this matter, but someone who is ready to, to study, to struggle with the students, and also to, to show them that, well, obviously, if you, if you study for a few years, you will, you will understand the text and it will become simple. It's just you have to be patient. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, yeah, that you're almost there saying there is the other side of this struggle. It's not just a pointless struggle against a brick wall. You will eventually learn to sort of climb over the brick wall. Um, exactly. And, and, and then maybe then encounter another brick wall. But again, you develop that kind of patience and good humor and um, start to reap the rewards, even as you, know, you could go as deep as you want to go with these texts, as you mentioned earlier. I totally agree. And it's difficult to, to see the, the progress one is making at the beginning, but there is, there is much progress. So sometimes I think the role of the teacher is also to, to remind students how much they progressed. And then you can see it from your vantage point. You can see that they didn't know something at the beginning. And in, in just a few weeks, they, they begin to learn some things and acquire some skills. It takes time, but obviously just a matter of patience. Then the, the, second, the second aspect of my teaching uh, philosophy, if you wish, is that I'm, I try to teach a way of reading the text rather than uh, the grammar specifically. The grammar, you can find it in the grammar text. The vocabulary, you can find it in the dictionary. Uh, so the thing is what to do with that. What do we do with all these tools? So the tools are there. Uh, that is not a problem anymore. Online, we have all the uh, different versions of the Pali Canon. We have so many different resources. But the thing is what to do with them, which ones are more useful, which ones are less useful, when to use something, when not to use something, uh, just to, to develop this type of skills, of critical skills. And what I, I don't mean that I'm going to uh, tell my students, this is what you do in that situation. This is what you do in the other situation. It's not that. The point is, you have to think, uh, you have to think critically and see if something works or it doesn't work. But that looks very theoretical. At a practical level, uh, what I usually do is try to teach uh, a way or some, give some 
tips on how to read. Basically, we you find the text and there is a sentence. So in every sentence, there is a verb, for instance. So first thing, you find the verb. And for every verb, there's going to be a subject. So then we find the subject. And there are just a very few simple steps in which we can uh, organize the sentence, understand the structure of that sentence. And then probably if it's too long, then we break it down into very small parts. And each small part is very easy to understand. Then we put it all together and we try to translate. And also I try to explain that sometimes there are different possible translations, which is why in the bookshops you will find different translations of the same text. This is not a coincidence and it's, not, it's nothing wrong. It's just that the text itself can mean different things. So we have to be comfortable with that kind of level of ambiguity and keep going. But at least when we decide for one translation, we should know why. And I would say that this is my goal. I, I want to teach students uh, a way that when they, when they reach a decision and they say, I think that this means that, if someone asks, why do you think so? They can explain why. It's not just, well, one day I was meditating in a cave and that's exactly what I thought. So now I see it in the text, that's why. No, no, one can explain it uh, with, with reasons and with arguments and in, it, in a way that is convincing. And obviously at uh, the scholarly level, it will be uh, defensible. Then you can publish your translation, you can defend it. Yeah, that it's almost uh, teaching students a method rather right. than, you know, you know, here's a list of vocabulary words, memorize them, here's a list of grammar rules, memorize them. Um, but what do you do when you encounter a sentence in the future? And, you know, that, that method is actually super crucial because there's all these wonderful resources, but unless you know how to, to use them and to, to think critically with them, um, I'm reminded of the situation, you know, let's say like a hundred years ago, if someone was to tell you we have like all the information on the internet that we have available at our fingertips. Oh, we're all going to be so much smarter and we'll know how to do stuff. Not necessarily, unless you know kind of how to use those resources and, you know, a kind of rational way of applying them. Um, then you can kind of use them productively. I totally agree. Actually, the, the most influential person in my academic career was a professor of Latin syntax in Barcelona, back in Barcelona. They are no longer offering that course because it was too tough. It was, it was really tough and we all hated him and we hated that course. It was a yearly course uh, for three trimesters, but it was really good. And, and once I got into that, then it really changed my, my life. I actually thought that I, I finally learned Latin and that I had been in a kind of darkness before. And I, he, was, he was using a very classical uh, system of teaching, but there, there were a few pedagogical tricks that he was doing that were, uh, to me, they were amazing because they were uh, counterintuitive or they were something that it was almost like a superpower, something that I never thought before. No other teacher taught me, namely that when we had exams, he would uh, give us a list of sentences in Latin and then the question was very simple. What is wrong with that sentence? What is anomalous? So what is, what is uh, different in that sentence? Can you see that there is something here that is not normal? And then you have to identify that. And he trained us to do that. And there was a point in where we could do that. And that gave me a kind of uh, compass. And when I studied then Sanskrit and Pali, I always thought I have to reach the point where I can be sensitive to these things. Because when you reach that point, 
then you can you can read the style you can identify the style it's like you can not only you get the nutrition of the food you also feel the taste of that food and you can identify which fruit is it or which ingredient so that was that really marked my my uh, kind of progress in the study of ancient languages and that's one thing i i try to do with palais like there is a type of sentence that is normal there is a type of sentence that is not normal doesn't mean it's wrong but there must be a reason why the author why the writer is writing it differently so first thing identify is this is this normal pali or there is some kind of stylistic change and if so then why what is the what is the purpose of of saying these things in this way and that really opens up a whole new dimension of of reading text that that applies to many languages but also applies to pali and that's one of the things that i'm, I'm trying to do that's definitely one of the rich aspects of you know whatever the language people grow up speaking is that you can pick up so many nuances and subtleties you know um what's the example of this sentence that people say um she never told him that he loved her and if you emphasize different words in that sentence you'll get eight different meanings for the sentence because you know, or if you put it in a slightly different order, right? So much is conveyed there, but, you know, often, and it, it takes a while to get that facility with different languages. I certainly don't know that I have that facility with Sanskrit. My Sanskrit is intermediate, um, I think, on a good day. Uh, but once you start to, to appreciate the richness of the language, you can move past, you know, the kind of idea that, you know, I had as like a third grader that, well, I'll just look up each word in the dictionary and I'll write out the words and that's the meaning of the sentence. You, know, you want to be able to kind of have a, a bigger picture understanding of what's going on. Yeah, it's like the the, the, the whole is, is bigger than the sum of, of the parts or something like this. Yeah, this is This is the... This is the idea, but of course, one feels uh, quite frustrated at the beginning sometimes with the dictionaries, with the tools and uh, learning the vocabulary. So what, what I say doesn't mean that one doesn't need to memorize anything. There are things that it's, it's good to memorize, but then it, it's even better to memorize them knowing what to do with them, because otherwise we just fill up our memory with lots of data and we spend many hours doing exercises. But we we have to try to exercise or to... Uh, to train our mind in the exercise of reading so that the mind feels comfortable in, uh, in moments where there is misunderstanding or where the text is not clear, uh, when things are difficult, the mind knows what to do. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to find for this. I'm going to see this, this word is going with that word or what is the case ending. I'm trying to see all the different possibilities and be comfortable in, in, in that situation. And not just simply say, well, it doesn't make any sense. Or um, so one would give up. Or one, the tendency is that we think, well, I think I think I know what it means. And then we go for the easiest possible translation that sounds good to us. And then it will be wrong. It will be wrong. It will be easy to prove that it's wrong. So simply to be comfortable in this uh, discomfort, so to say, and and to be to be there, try to read the text even when we don't know the vocabulary. And it should be fine. And over the years or over the months, even one will start reading the text. Then an advantage that you mentioned before with regard to Pali is that being a, a corpus of, of scriptures, of text, that is usually 
basically, it's usually the Buddha speaking and teaching the Dhamma, teaching the, his, uh, his truth. Then there are certain things that are repeated all the time, certain structures and, and formulas that come uh, off very often. So if we, if we keep reading and studying, then after a few months, we are basically ready to read one sutta on our own, one of these short texts. And that is the goal, at least if we have to quantify, we, we can say, what, what will I be able to do at the end of this Pali 101, or, or let's say at the end of elementary Pali, these uh, three courses, uh, definitely we will be able to read one sutta. Or we can open the Sanyutta Nikaya, and if we follow the three steps, Pali 101, two, and three, then you can definitely open a Pali text and then you can navigate through the text. Maybe there are a few words you don't know, but with a dictionary, you will be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, the ability to, to do that, um, I think, yeah, just adds to that richness because then you're no longer necessarily as reliant on a translator who, who may have made, you know, good choices for reasons that they have, but, you know, they often don't, write out those reasons or write out those methods. And so you can kind of be reading it in the English. And when you get to a passage that you're like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, you know, what's the poly that corresponds to that? And you can go check the poly and come back. And something that you said earlier um, resonated with me insofar as, you know, one of the tendencies that we have is to, to give up or to be frustrated. But another tendency that we have is to assume that we know what things mean. And that one of the gifts of studying a language like this, studying a difficult language like this, is a sense of humility in a certain kind of way that um, you're aware that it's, it's quite difficult and that you could make different choices and that you don't necessarily fully understand it. You can arrive at a translation, but you can still say, you know, maybe there's more here um, or let me read the rest of the text and come back, or let me read the rest of the canon and come back, or um, that you're aware that you could spend the rest of your life studying these things and not reach the end of it. I agree. And, and this is a different approach than the traditional approach. And I understand many students who have an answer for many of these difficult questions because there are answers available in different traditions. So if you ask, what is the meaning of I don't know, vijnana, consciousness. What is consciousness? Then there are uh, ready-made definitions or interpretations by great teachers. And I'm sure that they are very useful if, if one is a practitioner and there's no problem with that. The thing is that if we want to understand for ourselves and try to see why it means that, and maybe we are curious and we want to understand why this great teacher understands it in this way, but there's another great teacher who is also great who also knows a lot of Pali, but completely disagrees with the other teacher. So uh, again, it's not a practitioner usually will be discouraged to get into all these discussions, but I think there is nothing wrong in that, in trying to understand. Our uh, rector at the Shan State Buddhist University, the Venerable uh, Kamai Damasami, who studied at Oxford University, and he also has a Western education. Uh, sometimes he has been asked, um, basically very directly, like what is the point of all this intellectual exercise? He's a monastic and he's well known because he's always reading books and he's very much interested in not just in Buddhism, but in other branches of uh, modern psychology, uh, philosophy, history, everything. Uh, 
And then he mentions the example of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva. He says, well, clearly uh, in many previous lives, the Buddha, before becoming a Buddha and a an, fully enlightened being, uh, in many of his previous lives, if we read the Jatakas, he was a great scholar. He was learning all these things. He was learning all the worldly science. He trained his mind. He tried to understand things and not just parrot them or repeat what the teachers say. One is trying to sharpen the mind and try to understand things. So the same applies to Pali, I think. And in that sense, I'm aware that it's, sometimes it's a bit problematic. For instance, there is one word in Pali that is very important. In Buddhism, it's uh, Sankara or Samskara in Sanskrit. And I don't know what it means. I'm going to say it here. So I don't really know what it means exactly. I know what it means in certain contexts, but I find it very difficult. And I think I'm not the only one. The thing is, when we discuss why it is difficult, then we can give different reasons. I think if the discussion is well informed and is based on, on evidence, and we can show, look, in this text, it is expressed in this way, or there is that commentary that gives this interpretation. So then it, it helps us to try to refine our understanding. It's not that I completely uh, ignore the meaning of Sankara or Sanskara, but I just, I don't fully understand it and and I try to be fine with that. I think maybe one day I will understand. Some practitioners will say, well, once you are enlightened, maybe you will understand. It's possible. I don't deny that. Maybe I need to meditate more. So you just keep going and things will come. But you can definitely read Pali without being a complete expert or knowing everything 100%. And one thing so in Pali, uh, in elementary Pali, we'll try to build a foundation. And then at the level of intermediate, if we, if we get there in the future, then we can we can be uh, we can begin to read the commentaries, which are very important, and they are also a major part of the tradition. They are the tradition, right? Uh, so you had Professor Maria Haim here talking about Buddha Gosa. She's a great great author in this Pali tradition, and he was the author of the commentaries. So this literature is really amazing, and, but that is something that we cannot tackle at elementary Pali. We have to be patient and wait a little bit. So this is the beginning of the path. We can we can read the suttas, and then later on we can we can read more texts and expand our knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Maria Haim, um, who teaches a course on the Visuddhimagga um, at BSO, because I'm remind, reminded of the conversation I had with her that one of Buddhaghosa's chief sort of interpretive strategies when he was writing these commentaries, trying to unpack the suttas, is that. The Buddhist speech is endlessly meaningful. You could not ever fully explain or fully plumb the depths. Um, and then that was something that guided his interpretations. And so I, I do think that that's a really sort of transformative sentiment if you approach texts in that way, that they're not something to just sort of decode and move on, but actually there's, there's so much depth there and that you'll never fully reach the end of it. A totally disparate but sort of analogous example is, you know, sometimes I'll bring this up to my students when they're asking me to define some term in Buddhism. I'll say, well, how about you guys define love for me, right? You guys are all native English speakers. What does love mean? And they'll say, well, it, it depends and it can mean different things and different people define it differently and, you know, it depends on the context. And I'll say, imagine that every language that you study has this level of depth and complexity and sometimes internal diversity and, you know, context dependency. And sometimes a little 
switch flips in their brains where they go, oh, oh, this is really complicated. You could spend a lifetime with this. And so I said, what a wonderful lifetime that you could spend doing that. I totally agree. I usually use the, uh, uh, the word democracy, but I think from now on, I'm going to use the word love. It's much better and we don't get in, in, in trouble in some places. So yeah, that's, that's the thing. And what one uh, very interesting aspect of commentaries is that they, they seem to feel, so this type of uh, interpretive text, uh, they're always comfortable uh, with different interpretations at the same time, like simultaneous interpretations that they build up on one another. It's not just so. It's not just that there are different interpretations and different meanings at the same time, but these are like kind of different notes creating chords of meaning. There is a kind of harmony of meaning when you you give one one note of interpretation a different note, and then there is this relationship between both of them. Then you give a third interpretation, you make a kind of chord. Uh, like in music, like if you're playing. And so this, all these uh, overtones and these resonances are part of the literature. If we read translations and we don't read the originals, all these things are obviously lost, but they are a major component of Indian literature and, and Pali is not an exception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, that this, this richness and this depth that you can gain with studying these kinds of languages and studying these texts in original languages um, is I think, I think the most that we can say for why people should be interested in studying languages like Pali. Um, but, you know, we should probably, um, I know that it is late in Spain where you are. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the class. Thank you very much, Kate. Uh, thank, thanks to you for having me here. And I'm also looking forward to the course. Looking forward to meeting uh, new students and people who are willing to learn Pali. I will do my best to help them and I will be very happy to, to do so. Thank you very much. Yes, I think you'll be, you'll find Alish to be an enthusiastic and supportive coach as you, maybe you'll feel yourself to be hitting these brick walls, but he's there on the other side saying, keep going. Um, but yes, thank you all as well to all of you for listening to this episode of the Buddhist Studies Podcast. And uh, we'll see you next time.